you may find that once you've pulled the layoff slash redundancy trigger, you've unleashed some other ills in the company and that starts to, to lose the people that you wanted to keep. The range in sanctions is huge. A sensible employer at least, before making these steps to definitely make sure it understands the risks and the process required. The most important thing is to keep both the market and the remaining employees and the departing employees on side. Because the last thing you want is employees going to the market saying how awfully they were treated. The Hearing. A legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The Cross-Examination. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Hearing, The Cross-Examination. Recently, multiple companies have been making large-scale redundancies. Redundancies that are international in their breadth. The ex-in-house lawyer in me started to wonder, what are the challenges and pitfalls in carrying out a large redundancy exercise across multiple jurisdictions simultaneously? And what different levels of protection do staff enjoy from Ireland to the USA? Today, I'm speaking with three experts to dig into the critical risks in running a large international redundancy exercise and finding out the essential practical tips for getting it done well and getting it done fairly. The Cross-Examination. Hi there, my name is Kate Bally and I am the Director of the Labour and Employment Service of Practical Law here in the US of A and I'm very pleased to talk to you today. One thing that's caught my eye recently has been a number of stories about redundancies at tech giants. I think the reason it's caught my eye is because the number of people being made redundant in these situations, 10,000 at Meta, 11,000 at Amazon, these are big numbers, but also that these are international redundancies. So they're redundancies across a company's international portfolio. And some of these, most notoriously Twitter, have been conducted very publicly. Many of these companies are employing staff who enjoy wildly different employment rights. And so I wanted to just kick off by saying, can you give me some of the differences that there can be in employment rights between the same staff in the same companies, but in completely different jurisdictions? Yeah, Becky, that's such an interesting question. Of course, you're absolutely right. This is a trend none of us want to see that, of course, we are seeing. I can speak to the U.S., that's where I practice, and I'll tell you that the U.S. is fairly unique in the world because of the foundation of at-will employment, which means that employees can be fired for any reason or no reason, absent very specific legal prohibitions. And I think other people in the world think, how can that be? Well, that's just how it is in our crazy U.S. of A. The default rule is that employers can and your employment with no notice essentially any time they like. There's no statutory federal right to severance, due process, or most employment rights that many countries take for granted. However, there is a federal law called the WARN Act, which is the Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act. And that is designed to give employees subject to mass layoffs or plant closings 60 days of notice before they lose their jobs. However, it only covers so many kinds of layoffs and has some big fat exceptions too, but it's a high bar to be covered by the WARN Act. Many states have adopted their own versions of the WARN Act, and New Jersey, for example, now has a much more rigorous version, but those are all very state by state, and I think still by international standards, 
pretty limited in what they give in terms of rights for employees. That's really interesting. I suppose one of the things that I always forget when I come up against US law and I always have to be reminded is that this situation, even in between states in the US, can vary quite wildly, let alone the situation between the US as a single entity and international law. Next, I spoke with Chris Hovenden, a senior editor in the Practical Law Global Employment Law Team and a former in-house lawyer with multinational organisations such as the Discovery Channel. Kate had opened my eyes to the situation in the USA, but I was curious to hear from him about other jurisdictions like the EU member states. When it comes to collect dismissals, there's variations in the rights of the employees, but also probably more appropriately from this perspective, the obligations of the employer. And one of the things I'd say before describing the variations would be what I've always referred to as false friends. And I think any employment lawyer who works internationally has found themselves in this particular danger where you've made the incorrect assumption that because countries are culturally similar, or some of their other employment laws are similar, you assume, therefore, that their collective redundancy process is similar. I mean, one classic example is that a common feature of collective redundancy, you'll hear people say, ah, within 30 days. Well, that 30 days, one, it is quite common, but what does it relate to? So for example, that can often be, what's the collective consultation threshold? For example, and this might surprise you in France, if you have two or more employees at risk of redundancy within a 30-day period, that triggers collective consultation. Whereas another example where you'll hear 30 days, that's used in the UK when it talks about the actual length of the consultation itself. So, for example, that's a 30-day consultation period before the first dismissal takes place, and but it's 45 days if there are more than 100 employees proposed to be made redundant. So. When we come about the the huge range in rights or obligations, you have, well, what is the threshold? What's the collective threshold? So, for example, in Italy, where an employer employs at least 15 employees, if there are more than five employees to be made redundant in a 120-day period, that triggers collective consultation obligations. And when we talk about rights, so you have the, the rights of, first, the right to be consulted. The question is, what's the trigger? who has to be consulted now in in some countries works councils are very prominent as are unions others you'll have to consult collectively and also with the individual employees the roles of works councils and unions can vary as well generally where there is a works council they have to be involved informed and consulted however whether they have the right to veto the proposed redundancies you'd have to check Unions in the U.S., that does change the landscape of what we've been talking about here. And for the most part, um, most of the U.S., the workforce in the U.S. is not unionized. But if you have a collective bargaining agreement, that does change the landscape. It modifies the terms and conditions and your your, um, authorization for rights that there is a contract underpinning that arrangement. And there are also senior executives for whom there are employment contracts. But most people, most employees in the U.S. are not bound by a contract and are not bound by collective bargaining agreements that would give them those kinds of rights. So the default rule in the U.S. is still at-will employment. When talking about rights as well, there'll be 
the statutory rights in regard to the process again, the thresholds, the process, and what the consultation involves, what you have to share with the people you're consulting with, and when or by when. But then equally, there can be other additional rights, contractual rights, including the individual employee contracts, but what would be more common would be rights or additional rights set out in a collective bargaining agreement. So, for example, that may set different thresholds, um, different consultation processes, and equally, there may be um, additional or enhanced severance payments required in the event someone's made redundant. And aside from all of these points, talking about the whistle stop on the differences in collective redundancy rights, there's then also where if you haven't followed a process correctly, what, what does that mean? What are the sanctions there? And equally, even if it's not a redundancy, you might face unfair dismissal claims or challenges. Having said that, though, which we haven't touched on yet, there are countries where, for example, the UK's one, where you don't obtain unfair dismissal protection until you have two years service, and likewise entitlement to redundancy pay until you have two years service. Likewise, Ireland's an interesting one where you get unfair dismissal protection after one year, but it takes two years for you to get the entitlement to redundancy pay. I see now why it's so critical. So what we have, if I can kind of pricey, I think, what is going on is when you have these very, very large international redundancies, you are not only dealing with very, very different redundancy regimes across different countries, um, and they can be as different as in some parts of America, you can just terminate somebody, that's it, they have to go almost immediately. There's no consultation period where you have to talk to anybody about it or review it in any particular way. That's it. They're just gone. And then you will have other jurisdictions, particularly places in, in Europe, where you have to go through lengthy consultation periods that can take a month or more. They'll be potentially, they'll have to be approved by employee representative bodies before they're allowed to do it. Yes. Um, and, that, that, and, and everything in between. And that you'll have to get it right in every single jurisdiction you're right because that in between is vast as well so and it also that itself can impact how long the process takes so imagine there is no works council there is no union you're very likely to have to elect employee representatives to represent the employees and follow a process with those representatives and often even when there's the collective consultation you're still required to consult individually with the employees as well in addition to that often before terminating the employees if that's what the resolution is you still then have to notify the authorities and they themselves can then sometimes refuse or review the process as well I mean, we, we've barely scraped the surface really because there's so much more to it than that but high level it's the mass variation across the different territories and we haven't really again those are obligations of the employer rather than the rights of the employee mm. and then the question is well what happens if an employer doesn't comply with the process That was my next question. What happens if if you think you can just terminate everybody at will because that's what you're used to in America and it turns out you've got staff in Ireland and France? Well, I suppose it's, it's also, it's twofold. It's not only whether you think you can. The other issue is sort of gets you to the same end game is where you don't think you can, but you think you followed a fair process and employees are often going to be disgruntled, aren't they? They're often yeah. going to be disgruntled then themselves look to bring claims. And likewise, if they are unionised, it may be in the interest of the union to defend those employees and bring those claims as well. Again, there's a wide range in answers, but one is that any redundancies may be found to be void. 
There is a chance that individuals might be able to bring unfair dismissal claims due to a flawed process. But then there can be punishments to the employer which may be criminal and with criminal fines, sometimes penal sanctions as well. So I just want to, to clarify there because it's very interesting to me that this, the span of uh, sanctions seems incredibly wide. Everything from nothing at all because it's an at-will contract and it doesn't matter what you do all the way through fines to presumably the redundancy exercise being found to be void so nobody's redundant and they'll presumably have a wages claim. Um, unfair dismissal again, which will just be, you'll have to pay out a bunch of money as a result of the unfair dismissal claim being successful if it is all the way through to criminal sanctions and particularly penal sanctions. We could just talk through the span of that because that seems amazing. The eventuality where there's nothing as a as a sanction that as you touched on that that's probably quite rare rather than in an at will scenario but you're right the range in sanctions is huge and it, a sensible employer at least before making these steps to definitely make sure it understands the risks and the process required just to give a few examples mm. um in ireland you have to notify the minister for enterprise trade and employment and wait 30 days after that before you can make a redundancy dismissal um, I believe if you fail to do that, there is a potential fine of up to €250,000. Um, again, in Ireland, a general failing of the process could be a criminal f- offence and have a fine of up to €5,000. France has, well, has a, a sort of a real perception of having huge employment protections. And there, an obstruction finding may result in a fine of up to €7,500 and two years in prison. Equally, then, in the UK, you potentially have a protective award, which is up to 90 days gross pay per employee. Um, And equally, there could be criminal sanctions if you fail to notify the authorities correctly. We're talking here about failings in the redundancy process itself, but as you touched on, there could separately be unfair dismissal claims. In particular, I gave the example in Ireland where someone may not be entitled to a redundancy payment, but they may have unfair dismissal protection. There are the statutory rights which are set out in regard to the collective redundancy process, but it's quite possible in countries where collective bargaining is common that there'll be particular processes that are in excess of the obligations set by the law that are imposed by collective bargaining. And equally, sometimes an employer should really know this if they've been party to the deal, but it's possible as well that in a, in a deal that's happened before, which involved the transfer of employees or taking on employees, where they've agreed with a union potentially where they won't make any redundancy dismissals for a certain period. I think was what pricked my ears was the second you said a, a penal sentence um, because I'm a lawyer in the UK. I'm not. I was never an employment lawyer. I was a commercial contracts lawyer, um, but I was very well aware that you would be running the risks of um, falling foul of unfair dismissal claims and collective bargaining agreements. The sort of thing I kind of picked up by osmosis by just being a lawyer in practice around fellow lawyers. But I had no idea that there were potential penal sanctions in any jurisdiction for failing to conduct a redundancy exercise properly. And I think that that is particularly interesting. The cross-examination. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover to the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.
My final guest for this episode is Stephanie Lopez. Hello, I'm General Counsel at Vault. We're an open banking account-to-account payment provider. I wanted to find out what Stephanie's most practical and pressing concerns would be if an imaginary someone came to her and asked for her advice. So my first question to her was both simple and horribly difficult. I'm really interested as someone who's in your position, what are the primary concerns when you're conducting this sort of large international redundancy exercise? Where do you even start? I think probably people are going to expect me to say, well, with the law. (laughs) I think it's a PR exercise, both uh, internally and externally. I think it's important that you keep the employees that will remain on side, but also to the market. You're showing that you're doing things well and properly. And obviously a huge part of that is making sure that you're being fair and compliant with what's an employment contract and the statutes huge part of that obviously but I think the most important thing is to keep both the market and the remaining employees and the departing employees on side because the last thing you want is employees going to the market saying how awfully they were treated so I think for me it's fairness it's caring and and it's compliance to the, the requirements of not just the law but any employment contracts any employee handbooks that you might have the other thing I'd add to that would be not only just those monetary fines or concerns but is actually you need to ensure your business continue well if the plan is to continue functioning that you retain the staff that are required to do that and and sometimes an abusive process such as that could be so demotivating is that you lose the talent that you had um who may decide well i don't it's not that i'm being made or it's rather i want to leave anyway i'm so unhappy with the way you've treated me um, and equally then you may struggle to acquire the talent in the future because of the reputational damage when you start to cut, you're doing a couple things. One, you're losing people's trust in the uh, functionality of the company. People think, is this a sinking ship? Should I be thinking of going somewhere else? That makes you nervous. And then the other thing that's happening is if you and I work at the same company and all of a sudden I'm gone, you've got to take on my workload. And that's going to make you not quite so happy. So you may find that once you've pulled the layoff slash redundancy trigger, you've unleashed some other ills in the company and that starts to to lose the people that you wanted to keep. You've also got reputational damage. I mean, the fact that you and I are talking about some of these companies, I think we may hold them in slightly less high esteem because of their decisions to lay off so many people. You think, are those companies making the right choices? Do they have the right leadership making those good choices? Who knows? There's costs associated with benefits and severance um, and all kinds of litigation risks, although at-will employment means for employers that there's this default rule of, you know, do what you like. However, there's a million carve-outs, and those include discrimination on the basis of protected classes like race, gender, age, religion. There's whistleblower claims. Maybe somebody had said, no, I've got a concern about the company maybe violating laws and that person was part of the group. That person might come along and say, this was retaliation. And then you've got a lawsuit there. Wage claims. Wage laws in the U.S. are very complicated. It's pretty easy to get them wrong. And you may find people who were like, well, I I don't really want to sue about it. Once they've been laid off, that calculus becomes a little different. So those are some of the kinds of concerns to consider. I'd like to pick up your point about morale in a slightly different way, because 
I think you're absolutely right, of course. There's a huge morale issue for the people left behind. I, I have worked at places where there have been redundancy exercises and lost colleagues. But one of the things that I noticed over the course, particularly over the Twitter layoffs, and I think it's because it felt very much that the veil of how these things are usually conducted was absolutely peeled back. Because if you were reading Twitter at the time of the layoffs, um, it, it seemed almost as if you were getting a real-time blow-by-blow account from both the management when Elon Musk was tweeting um, and the staff who were also, who had just been laid off, were tweeting. And so for me, that was a particularly eye-opening. I felt that I had an insight into this process a process which I, as a lawyer, felt probably hadn't been checked by a lawyer, if I'm honest, but an insight into a process that I didn't normally get to see. And I think that was very interesting to me because it also appeared to be an insight into a process that obviously nobody else normally got to see. But the upshot of that was that I saw time and time again, American Twitter users being completely surprised that, say, their counterparts in Ireland, Germany, France, the UK had a very great deal of employment protection compared to what they had. And it was almost that the the very public way it was it was done and that it happened meant that the veil was completely lifted for some people who presumably had just assumed that everybody was on an at-will employment and that that was completely normal and natural. So my question is, are people in the US suddenly looking around at the rest of the world realizing that what they might have accepted as perfectly normal and natural and actual employment is completely unusual and that uh, other people in say France or Germany have far more rights than they do. What's been the response to that do you think? Yeah Becky that's such an interesting question. I think that Americans tend to be pretty America oriented to be honest. We are a inward looking bunch. Um, I don't get the sense that there's a lot of focus on international rights, maybe once the smoke clears and people have a chance to think about what's really fair and what's really not, maybe that's part of the calculus. And perhaps that's why we're starting to see some states amping up the mini warns with some recognition that the rights for employees are quite limited. Um, In New Jersey, this law essentially compels severance in a way that no U.S. jurisdiction, and certainly not the federal government, ever had. That used to just be a penalty for failure to comply with notice requirements. So I think the U.S. in very small baby steps is starting to recognize that maybe there are rights that employees should be granted in the U.S. But I think the people who are finding themselves uh, subject to layoffs in the U.S., are mostly getting on LinkedIn and kicking their resumes into high gear. And I I think that they are focused on moving right along. There are a lot of jobs in the U.S. right now. The unemployment rate is still rather low. I'd heard a statistic that it's taking white-collar workers something like three to four months to find new employment, which is pretty quick. No, no, I get that. I get that. Twitter was doing something in addition to making people redundant in a variety of very interesting and some would say off-the-cuff ways. But the other thing that it was doing at that time was that it was changing the rules and expectations quite quickly in a number of other places in the working relationship between the staff. Various emails and messages were sent out by Elon Musk setting out new expected ways of working, immediately shutting down a home working agreement that had been formally put in place a couple of years before, 
and that sort of thing. And so the other question that I wanted to talk about was what other considerations are there, again, with that international lens, where you want to very, very rapidly change the terms of working and, and how is that best done? Yeah, I think uh, Elon's famous email, wasn't it, was um, if you have the ability to get to an office, but don't, resignation accepted. Yes, I remember that email and thinking with my lawyer head on at the time that that was a, a bold thing. Well, there's lots of facets to this, but one would be generally where collective bargaining is stronger, then obviously it's far harder to make those changes, if not impossible. One will be simply the power of the unions or the collective groupings and then also the terms of the collective agreements um, but you're right what you're asking is what's the ability of an employer to make a unilateral change to employees terms and conditions of employment it vastly depends on the territory but broadly if it's a contractual term then that would be difficult to do and if you're looking to change a fundamental term then that would be far more likely to raise problems and challenges and be, be seen to be unlawful rather than a minor change you could find yourself in unfair dismissal scenarios where people say, hold on, you've made a unilateral change, that's unfair, um, and you fundamentally changed my terms as a breach of contract, and then you end up with an unfair dismissal claim. It certainly reads different in the United States where we tend to do things just a little different. Employers have a lot of leeway in the U.S. to change the expectations of the job. The U.S. laws would not have much to say about calling you back into the office. As a general rule, that's fine. Now, uh, could he use a little work on the bedside manner uh, in his communications tactics? That's a different thing. But if you're talking about the strict requirements of the law, the biggest risk that you would see with something like this is the disproportionate impact that people would feel. Did the change hurt some protected classes in particular, like persons with disabilities who may have mobility challenges of getting into the office as quickly as the mandate requires? You may have to engage in what's called here the interactive process and provide accommodations in order to comply with the law. But if you want to change the requirement for in-person work in the U.S., that's not a problem. I think it's very interesting as well, this conception that I can change the terms and conditions instantly on a whim at will and have that be you either comply or you're resigning for not complying. The thing what I find so interesting about that is this speaks to a very particular way of viewing the employee-employer relationship. There is no social contract there. There is no, we are coming together to do something for the betterment of both of us. There is no, I, the employee, have got value in this relationship that I am bringing and I'm giving to your company. And in return, the company, you give me a limited sense of security and an unlimited understanding that you value me in return. And therefore, there is no relationship of trust anymore. You know, I've been doing a lot of reading recently about the social contract between us and government and us as human beings and each other. And I think applying that here, there's some really interesting thinking to draw out is that if you don't have that reciprocal relationship of trust, a sort of a social contract between employee and employer, then... That seems to me hugely damaging and not just obviously for the employees who are going to lose their jobs very, very quickly and have no social safety net, but for the for the companies as well, surely. I think it is. And I think there's only some power in it for the employees where they're sort of a key employee and they're the only one that knows how to do something or they're very niche. 
Because I think in that case, they've got all the power, haven't they? Oh, well, I don't like that anymore, so I'm going to walk away, actually, and I can. For the more junior employees or those that sort of are easily replaceable, I find it entirely powerless. And I think you're right, it is a very difficult dynamic. I think there's something more to it as well. It's not just that there's the one important, valuable employee who knows the one valuable thing that they need, who has that extra bargaining power. But what I have observed, having been through a number of redundancy exercises in my time at organisations, is that you invariably don't know how valuable somebody is until they've gone. And then suddenly it turns out that the most junior member of staff who you thought was the most disposable in the business turned out to have one critical relationship or knew one critical piece of information and suddenly it's a disaster and you end up putting days, if not weeks, of management time to fixing it, which could all have been avoided. Yeah, 100%. It's um, incredibly difficult. There's always that guy that wrote a bit of coding on a Saturday night who felt like, you know, doing a bit, bit, a bit extra work for the employer and they just didn't know how valuable it was and he walks away and, and what can they do about it? So in your mind, what's the sort of process a large company should be going through when they are looking at making 10, 11,000 or even even just, I say just 3,000 staff uh, redundant? What's the process that you would recommend to make sure you're getting it right? It's not necessarily just straight away what the legal steps are. I suppose it also depends on what your involvement as the employment lawyer within in the company and how involved are you in the decision process. And I don't mean the as whether individuals are made redundant or if you'll provide guidance on that and how that process should be followed, but more whether this is the right thing to do in the current circumstances and what other solutions there are, probably in light of the practicality and the difficulties of the process you might have to follow. Actually, I do think that as in-house counsel, you can rationalise it and make sure that we are carrying out the right procedure with the right number of people affected and that the business can still continue to run. I think you're absolutely right. I think as in-house counsel, is very much a space for stepping in and saying, hang on a minute, you are getting dangerously close to not being able to, uh, and this was the advice that I remember giving, you were getting dangerously close to not being able to fulfil your contractual duties because you are cutting this entire team and that's going to affect your delivery so fundamentally. And I would love to be in a position where the business doesn't need to be reminded of that. But I do think sometimes there's a space for lawyers as, as risk managers to step in and make that case. 100%, yeah. I think as in-house counsel, I think probably most of our job is not necessarily the strict letter of the law, it's more sort of being the adult in the room sometimes. You need to analyze the cost of complying with the relative dismissals. Yeah, um, yeah. statutory and or contractual and as I mentioned earlier uh, the impact of any collective bargaining may set particular thresholds if you are looking to make X number of employees redundant. I think that employers have a lot of options and I think most employment lawyers advise employers to consider other options before layoffs because they're so disruptive because they cause a lot of harm in their wake some examples that are popular and may be less disruptive include voluntary resignations, across-the-board salary reductions, not popular, but often people understand that that means that their colleagues aren't being laid off, reductions of hours for your hourly staff, um, sabbaticals, uh, brief shutdowns that can resume after a period, um, early out packages, which is sort of related to those voluntary resignations. Um, retraining or reassigning employees to other parts of the business as other alternatives to layoffs. 
When it comes down to what does it involve, you need to then understand how you appoint representatives. You need to look at the timings and the justifications. And then you've easily got your how you your internal messaging, things like that. And as I mentioned before, the importance of when and how you engage your external parties, being that works council, some trade unions. And then equally then that how do you notify authorities and when do you have to do that? I went into this episode fully aware, or so I thought, that there were differences in employment law and culture between different countries. I had no idea how stark that difference was. And that's just the difference in Western countries. We didn't even have a chance to touch on the rest of the world. If there is a key takeaway, then it has to be that no matter how tempting it is to shed stuff fast and keep shareholders happy, if you are doing that across multiple jurisdictions, you have to get it right. And of course, always treat the process and the people with respect. Thank you to my guests for sharing their expertise so generously. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Hearing, The Cross-Examination. If you enjoyed this, then please do like and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you have any questions or comments about what you have heard, then please email us at thehearing at thompsonreuters.com. I've been your host, Becky Allison. Goodbye. The Hearing. The Cross-Examination. A legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.